Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Wendy Seifert and welcome to the Anxiety Hour. This is a podcast where we explore the hidden parts of our lives and speak to very good people about what makes them feel very bad. Today, we're chatting to Vice's own Charlotte DeBock. Charlotte is best known as the host of Fashion Week International and the producer behind Viceland's State of Undress. But her work has also seen her report on politics and human rights around the world, including North Korea. From the outside, Charlotte's career has involved the kind of stories and travel most young journalists dream of. But as we discuss here, having your dreams come true so quickly can be really complicated. This episode discusses depression, suicidal thoughts, drugs and abuse. Please be conscious of that if you have been affected by these topics in your own life. Well, thank you for being my podcast guest today. I guess we may as well start at the beginning. Tell us about your experience with anxiety, if you have an experience at all. I think from what I can tell from speaking to my friends, anxiety comes in lots of different forms. And I think I have it pretty badly, actually. When I tell people that, they're often surprised to hear it. I kind of just have described myself in the past as like a fake shy person. So I've always felt very shy, okay? Kind of shy and and low in confidence. And like, I kind of want to hide. And yet I'm six feet tall and I have like 6,000 teeth in my head and it's really hard to hide. And as soon as I hit puberty, I kind of realized that. And when I walked into a room, unless I worked very hard to overcompensate for that and disarm people and smile and show them that I wasn't threatening, then things were harder for me. So I had to kind of fake bolster my confidence and project this kind of like confident, together, serene person in order to kind of manage social situations. Sometimes anxiety is worse than others. I am someone who I crave being alone. Um, I, I don't know if it's a combination of being an only child or, or what it is, but I can. I, I sometimes just cannot bear to be around people. I find it exhausting and overwhelming. I can just sit at home for days and not speak to anybody. I know that makes me sound completely insane, but it's like the only way that I can really quiet my anxiety. I'm sure yeah. on the surface there are a lot of things about you. You know, you're tall, you're striking and very successful that people would think that, well, if I was like that, I would feel okay. Do you find when you kind of say this to people, there is an element of, but why are you like that? You seem like you've got a lot of stuff kind of working out okay? Yes. And I I think it's definitely made me be more vocal about my own like mental health journey in recent years because I can tell that people, they're, they're like, but you seem, you know, you've got it all kind of thing. And sometimes I feel the opposite of that. I mean, I do sometimes have imposter syndrome and especially 
as I've got older and my career has developed and gone off in different directions, my anxiety's got worse. The way that I feel inside often is completely at odds with how other people see me. And that's something that has happened more recently. Like, I lived in London most of my adult life and then I moved to New York two years ago. And moving here, you know, I really had to change um, and adapt culturally in order to fit in. And being Charlotte until that point had hinged on not fitting in. You know, my career was built on the fact that I looked a certain way but clearly wasn't that stereotype. I'd been able to be successful at Vice because I was like a misfit kind of. And, And I thrived on just being able to be myself, which was this thing that didn't fit anywhere. And suddenly I moved to America and I was like, oh, people are gonna think I'm weird. I'm gonna have to kind of change who I am. And I started comparing myself to other people. And my anxiety got a lot worse because I stopped kind of trusting my instincts and I got paranoid that people thought I was stupid or I was no longer like good at my job, like all these kinds of things. It was like that for almost a year. And then, you know, I've been having therapy for years and I finally realized like that was all in my head. Basically, I created this entire narrative and everyone just still thought I was the same Charlotte that I always had been. You've worked for Vice for your entire professional life, is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I personally find that because I've been here for a long time, it's easy to kind of find yourself asking, is this really a presentation of my skill? Because I'm a one-trick pony kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to boil 10 years of my life down to give you one answer, but like, when I started at Vice, I didn't expect to have the career that I've had. I didn't think much of myself at all. I didn't have any ambition. I had had no role models in my life. I didn't know that I could be a journalist or be on camera or have any ideas or have a voice worth listening to. I was someone who I suppose was comfortable in institutions. My parents had sent me to a convent school for 15 years. I was at the same school with the same small class of girls. So my childhood was very much like Groundhog Day, like every day felt the same. And then when I got my first job at Vice, it was like once I got comfortable there, I couldn't imagine leaving. And it was just like, okay, this is me now. And I didn't know it was going to be 10 years, but like for some reason I'm just a creature of habit and I feel very, maybe I feel safe within like institutions. And I suppose... Maybe I've stayed because some of it is fear that I wouldn't fit elsewhere. But also, obviously, because I love it and Vice is still, you know, no matter how much the company changes and our culture shifts, like it's still the place where I can make closest to the type of stuff I want to make. It says something about my self-confidence that I haven't dared leave. Like, you know, whenever people say, you know, have you thought about moving on? And I get headhunted often a lot by other companies. I say like, oh, why would I leave Vice? But maybe the real answer is like, because I'm scared. You mentioned imposter syndrome before. And that's kind of interesting when you see it put up against the fact that, as you said, you've had this really fast rise. How did you cope with it when you were first starting out and when things were happening so quickly? that sense of trusting that you belonged there in that situation and you deserved what was happening to you? 
Actually, thinking back, I really, really struggled. And some of my co-workers who were closest to me will testify to that. I remember when I started, I'd written a few music reviews for the magazine. And then I came into the office as a word intern, which basically just means someone who makes cups of tea and like helps out with other stuff. But I ended up doing a bit of writing and I was pitching some stories. I didn't even know how to pitch a story. I didn't even know what journalism was really. I'd just finished college and I'd done a culture degree. And then my boss said, we need fashion stories, we need to break into the fashion world. And I didn't know anything about fashion and I didn't have any relationship with the fashion world. But as a person in the world, I had interests and they were always apparently quite like directional interests and my worldview was kind of different from like mainstream journalism and so I, I, I was like well we could cover all the other fashion weeks that nobody cares about instead of the big four and my boss was like that's genius like can you go and do it and I was like well no <laughs> I don't know how to do that I don't know how to make a film but I think at the time they just they gave us so much freedom they were like well yes you can just go go with the camera and you can do it and they were like you can be on camera and I remember thinking like can I? I'm so shy, I don't think I can. But the opportunity was presented to me and I was so desperate because I'd finished university, I was working like full-time in a bar and at Vice just to pay my rent. And I was so creatively frustrated and I was like, I want to do something amazing with my life. I know I have something to say, but I didn't know how and I didn't feel like I had the right training to do it. They gave me this opportunity, put me on a plane put a camera in my face and immediately I was like, oof, I don't like this. I didn't feel like I had the right to be doing that job. I thought, I knew that I was like, what we describe nowadays as like part of the problem, right? I was like another blonde, educated white girl on camera. And I was super woke back then. I didn't want to be part of the problem. And... I felt the shy girl, the, the true shy girl inside me was like, if I, if I look back at my early performance on camera, I'm like, oh my God, I suck. Like, I can just see myself being so shy and feeling like I didn't have the right to be there, like my opinion wasn't valid. And the only times it worked was when I was able to be myself, whatever that means. That's really interesting what you said about that kind of feeling of like, I'm part of the problem. Is that something that still follows you around? Oh my God, massively. So honestly, I think today by like TV host standards, I know what to do. I'm up there. I can hold my own, right? I've earned it. But when I started out, I should not have been given that job. I did not know how to be on camera. I could interview people. I was good at engaging, but I was not good at addressing the camera because I had these layers of insecurity that I could not break through. And I know that I was given that opportunity in the beginning because I was in the right place at the right time. Yes, because maybe I am unusual in that Vice recognised that I might look the way I did, but I had a different worldview. And yet, I know I wouldn't have been given that opportunity if I had not looked like I fitted in at Fashion Week, basically. That will always haunt me, or not haunt me, but, you know, I... I realised that I got my start because of a degree of privilege. Even so, as my career progressed and I decided I wanted to get into more serious news, 
it got to a point where I was like, maybe I need to just stop hosting and I need, I need to get behind the camera and start producing. And so I did. I stepped behind the camera. I produced States of Undress for Viceland, a series for Viceland. And it was great. But instead of making me think, OK, I'm going to be a producer for the rest of my life, it made me go, oh, actually, I'm not as bad of a host as I thought I was. I understand better how to use myself as a tool on camera. And you know what? Like, my voice is valid and I have earned it. But yeah, it definitely was a big problem for me at one point and I've had to really kind of work through it in order to feel okay about still doing it. Honestly, now I'm like, I want to be a prolific host when I'm in my 40s. I want to do a show when I'm pregnant. You know, I want to do that for society, basically. That can be my contribution. And also, maybe to show people that not everybody's journey is as it looks. I seem, as we've discussed, someone who has their shit together, but I honestly have had a pretty troubling mental health journey and I had a difficult childhood, things that I haven't spoken about, but we all have our struggles. Obviously, when people look at your work, you go to these pretty intense, confronting places, but it seems like a lot of the journey for you has been kind of more about becoming comfortable with your own validity to even just be on camera. What do you find the most challenging part? That's a good question. What I find challenging about my job has definitely shifted. It used to be performance anxiety and whether or not I had the right to be there. It has now become, as Vice grows and we have a more and more brutal spotlight on us and our journalism comes under greater scrutiny, it is the pressure to make sure that I'm doing the best journalistic job to earn my place there. You know, if I have the privilege to go into the jungle in Colombia for two weeks, I want to make sure that I do as good a job as any other journalist who is there. It's basically now turned into anxiety about the journalism rather than my performance because I've been able to become comfortable around the camera as I've got older. But yeah, it's mainly now like the anxiety over being the best at my job rather than just being there in the first place and the physical exhaustion of that. Going on shoots is very physically taxing and after a couple of weeks of no sleep, when you come back home, like, you know, you need to really take care of yourself because it affects your body and your mental health. We've talked a lot about your anxiety kind of directly tied to your adult life and starting advice, but were you an anxious kid? I don't think I was an anxious kid. I had an unusual upbringing in that I was... The people who were in charge of me when I was a child, and I, I'm not going to be too specific because some of these people are still alive, one of my main caregivers had mental health problems and had a personality disorder. So I was raised in a very dysfunctional way where I had to learn from a very young age to survive basically abuse, like physical and psychological abuse. And I was taken care of by this person for 15 years. And I clearly knew that it wasn't right, and yet it was ignored by the rest of my family. And I was so 
it was so normalised by the family that I thought it was normal. So I need to be clear, I wasn't sexually abused. It was just psychological. It was like, for my entire childhood, I was made to think that I was bad. Like, that I couldn't do anything right. And I was good, I was punished, and I was bad, I was punished. And very severely punished. Because the person who was in charge of me was very sick. So what that made me as a child was I learned how to perform. I had the inner me and... I had the child that knew how to survive and manipulate this sick person. And I remember being very self-aware from a young age and looking at the people in charge of me and going, I just need to survive this long enough so I can get the fuck away from these people, basically. So I basically became my own role model. I was my own mother and my own father because I didn't have anyone that I felt safe with. So... That's basically the simplest way I can answer your question of, was I an anxious child? Anxiety didn't even have a chance to come into it. It was all about surviving the day-to-day of this groundhog, like, arbitrary nightmare that I was basically living in. As soon as I hit puberty, it was like, okay, now I need to find out who I am outside of these people. And that's basically when the anxiety started kicking in because... I had escaped. So yeah, as a child, it was just about, you know, smiling and getting on with it. But in a way, it taught me to be who I am today. I don't know if that helps answer it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, that's really interesting, and it ties pretty elegantly back to a lot of the things that you were saying before. You mentioned you learned these instincts to perform, but it was coupled with the feeling of not doing the right thing. Yes. Which sounds pretty similar to what it feels like to be on camera. Exactly. From things as simple as being a child and watching the adults around you, you watch them be rude to waiters, for example, in a restaurant. And I just remember thinking, like, that's not right. Why are you being rude to the waiter? A you're not going to get what you want by being rude to them. B, you're making them upset because you think you're better than them. And I know you're not better than them because I know that you're evil and broken. And I think all that informed my own interaction with the world and the way that, you know, I am able to be a good interviewer and the way that I genuinely have so much empathy to tell other people's stories, that kind of thing. So any anxiety as a child I had, I quickly projected onto other people to, like, take the spotlight off myself basically why do you think it was that your instinct was to be the opposite of that as opposed to mirror it who knows it's funny because you know when you look at people's childhoods they always say it's one of two things like there's nature and there's nurture and then supposing you're raised by a terrible role model you either mimic them or you completely do the opposite who knows why i did the opposite i just remember from a very young age disliking the people in charge of me and knowing that I didn't want to be anything like them and that there must be a world where people aren't like that. And I don't know, I very much just lived inside my own head and developed my own code, you know, ethical code and values by which to live by. And who knows? I'm 
grateful to myself that I was able to do that. I probably wouldn't be here doing this job if I had had an easy life. Do you know what I mean? I would have probably gone down the route of all the other women in my family who are just like trophy wives, basically. I'm the only woman in my family with a formal education. I'm the only person who's been independent financially since, well, since I was 17, really. So, yeah, that none of that would have happened if I'd had an easy ride. I probably would have, like, married someone rich and been on my third divorce by now. <laughs> to hear more stories about the feelings and experiences we often shy away from, check out Violent Times, a podcast from vice crime writer Mahmoud Fazl. He speaks to people with incredible perspectives on crime, such as infamous Sydney organised crime figure John Ibrahim. To me, it was like a movie. Every two years, you chew them up and spit them out. You'd have this crew, that crew, this group, that group trying to make a name for themselves or barge their way in. Then they'd either shoot themselves out or burn themselves out. They'd go away. A whole new generation would come up. You mentioned that when you were a kid, you kind of didn't have time to feel anxious because you were just kind of trying to survive. When you then were out of that situation, when you were moved out of home or you kind of left that behind, and you then had to start the process of figuring out, well, who am I when I'm not in opposition to these people? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because, I mean, that sounds like a pretty hectic thing for a teenager to have to start digesting. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much had the typical like extreme rebellion situation so as soon as I hit puberty they say when you hit puberty that's when you kind of become who you really are if you haven't had the chance to already and I suddenly you know you're a teenager and all your senses are firing and I became deeply curious about the world because I I just was like I need to get out of this banal kind of Stepford Wives existence where people were aspirational about money and appearance. That just didn't interest me. I became very interested in alternative music and I would start hanging out at the skate park, (laughs) you know, talking to boys, smoking cigarettes, whatever. But it got really extreme, you know, because I was still having big problems with my caregivers. So I ran away. I got a boyfriend who lived in a squat and I like went and lived with him. I went to university. I dropped out a couple of times because I was just heavily depressed. I basically got into a crisis like in finding myself. I fell into bad circles. I basically started taking any drug I could get my hands on. And that was the way it was for a few years, like trying to finish university, being depressed taking loads of drugs. I also, at that time, became a semi-professional DJ because my life was so nocturnal and I loved music and that was like my escape, basically. And then I picked up Vice magazine and, I mean, it sounds so trite, but I literally, I was so depressed. I was working, like, full-time in a bar and DJing a lot and I had taken a summer off and gone to visit my dad who was living in France, didn't take any drugs for a few months, came back, spoke to a friend who worked at Vice and was like, can I start writing for the magazine? And they were like, yeah. And I started writing for the magazine, got the job and 
that's literally when my life started to get better. So I feel in a way like my my identity is so weaved in with Vice, with this place. It gave me like a kind of lifeline and it gave me something to do and focus on other than myself and my problems. And in, t in terms of trying to find out who I was, suddenly I had a platform for, for who I was and my ideas translated into words and ideas and films. And I have basically never felt the way I did again. I mean, I've struggled with, with new forms of depression, new mental health challenges, but that kind of terrible teenage doom was lifted, I was lifted out of it by getting the job advice. And I think that's a really important point to make because at the beginning of our interview, we talked a lot about the idea of anxiety at work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people obviously process and understand. But the idea of work being a salvation and a home and a part of your life that's safe and secure is important too. I'd show up at Vice, you know, I'd get there before my boss because I was desperate to get a job there. I was an intern, so I'd show up before he got there. I'd make everyone cups of tea. I wanted to make sure I was the best fucking intern that had ever existed. <laughs> you know, I was always going beyond the call of duty. And then, you know, at six o'clock, I'd jump on my bicycle and frantically cycle to the bar where I worked and did a, did a shift, you know, until like two in the morning. And then I'd be back at Vice the next day. I was working probably like 90 hours a week or something but I didn't care because I really had this sense of like this makes me feel alive this is a lifeline like all this like intense anxiety and like depression and nightmare going on in my head can be streamlined and used and channeled if I can just use it in this intellectual way I, I just knew it and it, luckily it worked out yeah and I mean I when you think about it like that, it makes sense why you have been there for 10 years, not so much of feeling like trapped. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like I owe this place my life. And and that's not, I don't stay here because I owe them something. I'm in an emotional relationship with this place. It's like my family. <laughs> I'm married to Vice. You mentioned in passing that you've gone to therapy before and found it really helpful and that you spend a lot of time alone and find that restorative. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you personally manage anxiety and what's really worked for you? Okay, so I suppose the most helpful way to talk about it is, you know, I spent most of my 20s working my ass off, doing my dream job, flying around the world, never taking vacation, never taking days off because I didn't want to do anything but my job I loved it you know vice was everything but I'd also had no um, room in my life for relationships okay so I was just working and I was the girl okay this is a really lame like analogy but like <laughs> if your friendship group is the women in sex in the city I was fucking Samantha okay I wasn't like sexually promiscuous in that way but I was the one who was like don't let boys hurt you they're dogs you know they would ask me for guy advice right and I'd be like don't text him don't fall in love don't have feelings for men that way you can't get hurt the reason I was like that is was because of my childhood so I'd never had any emotional intimacy with anybody even my friends because that was how I'd learned to protect myself from harm by not feeling but as I reached the end of my 30s and I was like what am I doing with my life you know I want to see if 
it's possible for me to have feelings for a man, you know? And that makes me me sound so extreme. Like, I fancied men, like, I had casual relationships with them, but I'd never really, really been in love, like, really. And so I challenged myself and I, I met someone and I fell in love, really, for the first time in my life. And I really thought, my God, I've won the lottery. I've got my dream job, my dream boyfriend. I know what the rest of my life is going to look like. Then, long story short, that relationship fell apart. I lost it. I had a complete breakdown, basically. I fell into complete crisis and became very, very sick. I basically had suicidal ideations, which if you had told me that, even the year before, I would have laughed in your face. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to experience feelings of suicide. I couldn't imagine. It would be like, imagine you're a horse. Like, that was how far away I was from someone who could ever imagine wanting to kill themselves. Suddenly, I found myself in a situation where I wanted to die. And, but I knew I didn't want to die, really. So my friends and family rallied around me and they were like, we need to do something. And so I went on a mental health journey. I started taking antidepressants and trying to get healthy and decided to move to America and it was the best decision I ever made moved to America which is also a place where mental health conversations aren't as taboo as they are in the UK you know I was brought up to have a stiff upper lip it's like a very British way of being depression was not acknowledged as anything real you know and so it was a great relief to me to come here where I still live And just be able to be like, I'm having a shit time and I'm losing my mind. And everybody be like, me too. (laughs) And so that's been really helpful for me. I've come here. I have an amazing therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist. I take two different forms of medication. I meditate and I'm in the best shape of my life mentally. It's really nice to hear someone talk about the medication side of mental health. Yeah. Because I feel like we've had this absolute renaissance in being able to speak about exercise and meditation and positive relationships and the way that affects how we feel. But the second you start talking about chemical treatments, you still do find a lot of people regress 15 years and shut down. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know why that is exactly, but I do think there is like a false dichotomy between like medical... Uh, interventions and like bad because self-care we talk about these days and it's about like eating natural and I think maybe people equate like pharmaceutical drugs with like recreational drugs I don't know why but for me and, and again I was one of those people who thought that it was shameful and that I failed in some way if I had to kind of rely on this type of medical intervention to help me but in a way accepting that these things could help me was important and I think this is true of everybody because I always would laugh off oh I had a fucked up childhood ah that's why I am the way I am but to be able to say look you really really survived something incredibly awful and to the extent that you need to take pills and that is okay like you're doing something good for yourself and it's okay to say like you suffered and it was awful And, you know, you should be proud. And the way I was treated as a child was unnatural. Pills are unnatural. Like, what are you going to do? What is your biggest fear? Like, what is the 
the one thing that you kind of always return to, whether it's a thought or a moment or a person or a place? My biggest fear. I suppose my biggest fear would be somehow going back to a place where I felt suicidal again, honestly. I don't know if it's like plates spinning and and, and I think about it every day. Like, am I happy because I have a nice boyfriend? Am I happy because I've still got a job? Am I happy because I still have my health? Like, and what if those things went away? Would I be plunged into a state of desperation again? Am I enough for myself without all these external... Will I have to always outsource my happiness to other people in order to not want to kill myself kind of thing, if that makes sense? So, yeah, I would say I do fear... Because once your brain has gone to that dark place, it's like Pandora's box, and it's always there. It never really goes away. And even though I would describe myself as lucky and happy and... I'm glad I've gone through everything I've gone through because it's made me the truest version of myself and the most authentic version of myself. I would hate to have be suicidal again. That's my biggest fear. Are you enough for yourself? If a good friend asked me, if the, you know, I would say to my best friend, yes, you're enough for yourself. So I'm going to say, yes, I am enough for myself, even if I don't believe it all the time. I think that is ultimately what, we all should be striving for every day. So I'm going to say yes, because it's a good vibe. Thanks for listening to The Anxiety Hour. If you need someone to talk to, mental health support is available 24 hours a day through Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 and at lifeline.org.au. This episode of The Anxiety Hour was hosted by me, Wendy Seifert, produced by Laura Appelt, with editing, mixing and mastering by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. Special thanks to the whole Vice podcast family. Remember to check out our other shows, Extremes and Violent Times, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on The Anxiety Hour, we're talking to Celeste Mountjoy, better known as the artist Filthy Ratbag. Her comics about sex, partying, and mental health have drawn an Instagram following of over a quarter of a million fans, But we'll dive into the darker stories behind her work and learn what it's like to get very, very successful before you've even finished high school. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.